That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Another week, Ben, in the free speech world. We're back talking with each other. It's Monday morning. Um, no, nothing has happened, Ben. It's been quiet. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Another quiet one. Uh, <laughs> crikey. I mean, w- what a story. Yeah. It's probably worth doing a bit of explaining in, in case people haven't seen it, but it, it's been in the Telegraph, it's been in the Mail, uh, it's been viewed by millions of people on uh, social media, on Twitter and YouTube. And this is the story of Lindsay Smith, a Newcastle fan, football fan, um, who it turns out has been, uh, who's been spied on by the Premier League, by a sort of intelligence unit within the Premier League after she was banned by her club for expressing gender-critical views and her opposition to trans ideology. Tom, have you ever heard a story in the West as extraordinary as this one? No, I haven't. I think the details of this particular case, many of them will be familiar to you, Ben, and to our listeners. They are an instance of someone who holds gender-critical views getting into trouble with an authority. You know, we Normally, we see that with employers, uh, in this instance, we see it with a football club. That That is not unusual. A Twitter user or a social media user getting into trouble or, or being investigated. But the elements of this, that dossier that was released after a subject access request was sent in, um, and I think the subject access request was sent in. Was it sent into the Premier League uh, or was it Newcastle, Ben? Well, at the moment, we we have a tool on our website, and we'll come on to this, where you can send a data request to both your club and to the Premier League, because what we're trying to establish is how widespread this phenomenon is, because there is this intelligence unit operating within the Premier League, gathering um, information and building up dossiers on individual fans like Lindsay Smith. But that includes photographs, doesn't it? Right. I mean, yes. it was sort of things from Google Maps, where yes. Lindsay walked her dog, where she may have lived, and trying to link together the the Twitter account, the social media account, with the uh, potential um, and the name with the fan, and and you just think, no, the 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 phrase that obviously Toby put together when we released the story is the stars, the stadium Stasi which I think sums, sums this up absolutely perfectly. It's, it's a stadium Stasi. If you wish to go and be a supporter in the stadium, then you are at risk of this Stasi police-like uh, experience, which is appalling. I really try not to reach for the language of, oh, this is like something out of 1984, or <laughs> this is like something from East Germany. But in this case... I think I'm allowed to say that at least once a year about something. And this, on the 5th of February when we're recording this, this is the day I'm going to use my one 1984 Stasi comparison of the year. Because this is just extraordinary. The, the Premier League built up an 11-page 
target profile. That's what they called it. That's not what we, the Free Speech Union, are calling it. That's not hyperbole from a reporter. That's what the Premier League called it, a target profile, which included information on, quote, associated aliases, end quote, and, quote, vulnerabilities, end quote, as well as you've just said, Tom, pictures um, of, of her physical location, of where she walked her dog. Um, mm. The most extraordinarily intrusive and entirely irrelevant material. Um, and and it's, it's probably worth, should I just go back right, right to the beginning of this case, because there's so much uh, yeah. to unpack here. It's probably worth just talking about about what she actually said, uh, what she said that got her into this trouble with her club in the first place. Um, and so lots of it is, is the sort of stuff that will be familiar to anyone who uh, is in gender-critical social media circles or anyone who's spoken about uh, trans stuff in the pub. So she talked about her fear as a gay woman that... Uh, the trans lobby wanted to trans the gay away, that uh, trans ideology was uh, or amounted to an attack on gay people. Um, and she compared or, or said that uh, believing you were trans was akin to suffering from mental illness. So it's all of these sorts of points. Obviously, there are many people who would uh, strongly reject that characterization of trans ideology and who completely believe that they have a, a unique special identity that is you know, locked out of a binary world, blah, blah, blah. Um, but nonetheless, that's a view that millions of people expressed by Lindsay on her Twitter account that millions of people would accept and agree with. Um, and so a complaint was made on the basis of these social media posts and screenshots were sent in to uh, Newcastle United. Uh, and we first became involved at the Free Speech Union when she'd been... Uh, barred by her club. So she's an absolutely devoted Newcastle United fan, uh, goes to as many games as she possibly can. She was barred by her club because of these tweets. We've been assisting her with this. But the other dimension to it that happened right at the start was that the club referred this matter to the police, mm. Mm. which before we get onto the stuff about what the Premier League is, is doing, um, the idea that tweets about trans ideology and, and tweets opposing uh, the claims of trans rights activists are a matter for the police. We see this time and time and time again. And the police really just need to start saying, get stuffed. This is not a police matter. This is nothing to do with the police. You disagree with each other online. That's the end of the story. And once again, it, it comes back to what level of authority are we actually speaking to or or someone like Lindsay is it's what what kind of authority she's facing and at what stage is it the police she's facing is it the, the the Newcastle football club that's doing this or is it even the Premier League sitting behind it we've got these layers of authority in situations in cases all playing their role and as you say in this case, I think, you know, quite quickly, the police said no case to answer. The, they saw the information and they said no case to answer. So I don't know, Ben, whether you think that's a positive thing that they came back relatively quickly. They still did, though, um, interview Lindsay under caution for a couple of hours before saying no case to answer. And I don't think even that should have happened given that gender-critical views are absolutely protected now under the Equality Act, and that's been proved again and again. But at least they dropped the case and said, "Nothing. there's nothing here, there's nothing to see here. 
Uh, did you think that was a positive or how? what were your feelings on that? No, I, I think the, the fact she was interviewed under caution by the police. So already the police have failed because at the first step of receiving this complaint, uh, which included things like she'd made a mockery of the trans movement, right? That was, that was one of the claims against her. The police should have looked at that and immediately said, this is nothing to do with us. Instead, yeah. she was interviewed under caution. Um, and it, it, let's just dwell on that experience. Uh, if you're a law-abiding member of the public, let's say you've had never you've never had any uh, interaction really with the police before, certainly never any hostile interaction with police, to then be interviewed under caution about your social media posts, what a frightening experience that actually is for people. Um, you know, the police can say, well, we didn't take any action, we didn't prosecute her. That was the end of the story. It was very trivial. Um, and maybe to police officers conducting an interview, that's that's a trivial thing. Um, but actually, I think for a lot of members of the public, that would be an excruciatingly stressful experience, yeah. a very frightening experience, where you don't know that the outcome is going to be no further action, where you might well be facing uh, a prosecution, uh, you know, a year of your life spent dealing with a prosecution, prison for all you know, fines, all of these things would be running through your head. So I don't think the fact that the police uh, didn't then take any further action actually is is, is much of a defence for their conduct and uh harry miller uh we're fair cop uh is pursuing that aspect of, of the case so um yeah. obviously that they, they have um a really good record working on um issues of, of sort of ideological capture of the police by by the trans movement and so on it's sleepless nights isn't it it's what where will this go how will this disrupt my life how how has this happened what did i do wrong all of those questions go ru running through your mind and uh, you, you may well, as you say, you may well never have imagined in your wildest dreams as a law-abiding citizen that that might happen. That's a very, that's a very fair point, Ben. It, you know, from just theoretically, it feels like maybe that's better than it could have been three years ago when people were left even longer hanging and yeah. even potentially charged or given an NCHI, a non-crime hate instance. So maybe I'm looking at it from that perspective and saying that we might be a little bit better than than where we were a year or two years ago, but it's not good enough, I think. I agree with that. So uh, I think that, so, so when we get this story to the point now where she's been, um, the matter's been referred to the police, there's been this complaint to, to Newcastle, to her club. Newcastle referred it to the police. The police have, after two hours, decided that there's to be no further action. And this is when it ends up with the Premier League's investigation unit, uh, which, as the Telegraph reported over the weekend, does not have an official name, but is part of the legal department based in Paddington of the Premier League. Um, now, the purpose of this intelligence unit, for want of a formal name, uh, was to monitor racist abuse directed at players. So we can see in the space of, what, five years, four or five years, the mission creep within that unit from monitoring racist abuse targeting football players to investigating people for expressing in a context entirely unconnected from football, entirely unconnected from matches or from the club, expressing gender-critical views in their private life, on their, their own social media. So it's entirely uncoupled from any legitimate interest that a football club or the Premier League might have. 
and there's been yet there's been this mission creep mission creep is exactly the right word ben I, there was a very interesting uh, article i read um that i think toby shared with us um saying that you know the idea of um units intelligent un- intelligence units british uh, mi5 units or such like embedding themselves in groups during say the miners strike in the 1980s or certain you know the communist movement in the 1970s whatever I mean, that that has happened in the past the mi6 and the mi5 uh, folks even the fbi they do that i think the the thing that happens there though is that those are monitored state authorities now we may still feel uncomfortable with them we may still say no i this is very worrying this is authoritarian this is totalitarian however there is a prime minister who is getting briefings from those agencies there is a or a president getting briefings from those agencies and holding the leash and that president that prime minister is democratically accountable ultimately uh to to the people the issue, I think, with this instance of a unit and the mission creep of a unit is, well, who, to whom are they accountable? Because maybe they aren't. Maybe the prime minister is aware of it. Maybe maybe there is a minister who's aware of it. But the point is, it's 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 come out of the blue, hasn't it? It's not. It's unlike. I mean, I suppose MI five didn't admit their own existence, or MI six didn't admit their own existence till relatively new. But it feels like this is this is particularly covert. It, it reminds me, as you know, Tom, I've, I've got a little bit of a side project um, doing some uh, some research on the presidency of Richard Nixon. And one of the things that went on in his White House was setting up a private intelligence unit within the White House called the Plumbers, um, who would gather intelligence on political opponents. Um, and so it, it, it reminds me, I have to say, of that, where you have this completely illegitimate intelligence gathering function um as you said there's no there's no national interest or security interest at stake here this is entirely an action by a private business uh, mm. snooping on ordinary members of the public and when you look at some of the detail we, we've spoken about already about the fact they were they were sort of checking out where she walked her dog but let me just read this line from you uh, this is in the report on the target they do appear to walk their dog by redacted church which is just off street name redacted where she lives wow yeah it's a police investigation i mean it's it's it's, it's, yeah. it's just uh, chilling is I, i'm struggling with words here here ben and of course another element to this then is that is extraordinarily uh, personal information i mean you redacted some of it there uh, and it was redacted in the dossier quite rightly why was it redacted because it's personal information, you know, the wrong person gets gets that sort of thing. Then, then, uh, you know, there, there, there are potential threats out there against an individual. And so, the other element of this story, of course, is that um, you know the, the the information commissioner commissioner's officer has been informed of what's happened. The information commissioner's office has been informed of what's happened because this, we believe, could well be. Uh, a breach of GDPR and GDPR, as we all know, so that means the general data protection regulations that came in, and I think it was 2018, that essentially governs how personal data is treated by companies, by institutions, and 
to GDPR also brought in this right that we have to a subject access request of any organization. This is different to a um, freedom of information request, which only applies to public authorities. A subject access request applies to any institutional organization who holds your private data. And this is private. This is Lindsay's private information that's been handed between one institution and another without her explicit consent. And so that does then need to involve the ICO. Uh, but the, I mean, the penalties that are potentially involved, in, depending on the egregiousness of the breach of personal data regulations, are quite terrifying, aren't they, Ben? You, you've got the numbers, or you, you've, you've discussed this before we came on air. Yeah, it's 4% of annual turnover is one of the potential penalties, uh, pardon the pun. Um, So (laughs) it's... You're getting all football. You're getting all football (laughs) now, man. (laughs) So it's serious stuff. And so Lindsay has submitted this uh, request, uh, sorry, this report to the ICO about what's happened. Um, You know, one of the things I've been reflecting on, I I said this to somebody on on the phone earlier who, who were helping actually... Um, that lots of people approach the free speech union and uh, kind of come from the left of politics um, and then find that they've become politically homeless because they're uh, just horrified by the authoritarianism of social justice ideology, the woke movement. That That's something I hear people say virtually every week. Um, but I think what, what I'd say, coming from centre-right perspective, is that... Um, I'd accepted throughout my university education, my schooling, which which back then was you know still of a pretty good standard. So we're talking you know, 15, 20 years ago now. Um, I'd accepted the sort of canyard that free markets mean free people, and yet mm. what we're seeing time and time and time again, and most egregiously with this, is that perhaps the greatest threat to freedom in the West now is coming not from authoritarian government, but from authoritarian private businesses. And the kinds of intrusion that, are ta- that have taken place in Lindsay's case, and it may well be that hundreds of, or thousands of other football fans have, have fallen foul of this as well. Again, no pun intended. Um, and we're trying to establish that. I said uh, near the start of the episode that we have this tool on our website, where you can send a data request to your club and to the Premier League and find out if this has happened to you as well. Because it seems to me very improbable when you look at the correspondence. Uh, so Lindsay got all of this because she sent her own data request. You can see the email from Newcastle to the Premier League uh, saying something to the effect of, would you look into this for us? So it's obviously a completely normal function, that suggests to me, and a completely normal process for a football club to refer a matter like this to the Premier League. And it doesn't seem that at any point there was any suggestion that that was an irregular thing to happen. So all of this is suggestive of the fact that many others may uh, also have reports like this uh, that the Premier League hold against them. Some of those people will be people who've, who've targeted players with racist abuse, but I suspect there may well be others in the same category as Lindsay. And we have on our website a, uh, there's a, you can go straight through to the news page and there you can send a subject access request directly to, if you are a football supporter 
and a Premier League club supporter directly through to that um, Premier League club and to the uh, Premier League itself to find out what may or may not be held on you personally. But I remember at the end of last episode, Ben, you quoted G.K. Chesterton and we were talking about what happens in a post-religious society when we lose religious conviction, in this, in this instance, Christian conviction. And the, the quote, as I recall, said that the most worrying element of that is the way that the virtues wander around uh, once they've been released from the containment of, a, of an ethical system, the virtues wander around homeless, and as they wander around, they wreak havoc. And when I think about the, the genesis of this, the embryonic place from which this kind of authoritarianism comes, it comes from the virtue of saying, we want to do good. We want to make it a safer place for vulnerable groups, for those who may feel victimized. And that yeah. virtue has turned into this most terrifying authoritarianism because it's been, become blinkered and not realized that if you don't contain it, if you don't monitor it, if you don't create guidelines around it that recognize individuals, not just groups, but individuals and their own specific um, beliefs taken as they are, rather than as you might perceive them to be through a group lens, you end up with this crazy level of authoritarianism, which, as we've said before, is not accountable anymore because it's kind of come out of, it's grown up from a place of trying to do the right thing within private businesses, within individual institutions, and it's multi-layered. Uh, rooting it out is, is I don't know how we even begin to root this sort of thing out. I, I saw last week on Twitter, there's an account, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, Rolf Degen, who's an academic, and he does this uh, really interesting thing of, of kind of summarizing in layman's terms uh, findings of um, social science journal articles. So he, he takes the very turgid prose, um, boils it down to the most important findings and, and packages it up for Twitter with the link so you can go and read the full article if you want to. Um, and one article that he summarised uh, was, let me just find the title, The People Think What I Think, False Consensus and Unelected Elite Misperception of Public Opinion. So in other words, uh, in layman's terms, this is the idea that... Um, Unelected elites, so we're talking about uh, civil servants, journalists, lobbyists, tend to think that the public think as they, these unelected elites, also do. And these unelected elites tend to think that people think what they think. That's what it is, in essence. That's what it boils down to. And uh, I sent this to you, Tom, didn't I, a few days ago? Because <laughs> you were telling me that I ought to think what you think, as I recall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, the, that seemed to capture for me the, in a kind of uh, social scientific way, the arrogance that we perceive. I think when dealing with institutions, when seeing what the Premier League have done, uh, what EDI training senior civil servants are forcing on their department, um, what what teachers or some teachers think it's it's appropriate to teach in schools, uh, irregardless of what the duties towards um, political impartiality are, 
it, it's that same sense that I think lots of people encountered after or during the Brexit referendum of, yeah. well, you're a decent sort of person. You must you must agree with me about Brexit or immigration or the environment or trans or Israel-Palestine or whatever. Um, and I just thought that was worth noting. Um, I thought that was a really interesting finding. It's one of those findings that confirms something you already kind of intuitively feel. It's this oversimplification of society amongst the elites as well in 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 seeing it as i'm going to come back to big homogenous groups recognizing uh difference in society but only through a group lens and this is exactly what happened after the brexit uh referendum when there was this um absolutely specious accusation that went around saying well you know, Brexit, those who voted for Brexit were racist. And I think we talked about the voice referendum in Australia. The same accusation was cast uh, against those who voted against the voice uh, having uh, uh, having a voice in government, um, that those people were racist. And then you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. You're talking about 48, you know, 52, sorry, 52% in the Brexit referendum. What, what are you talking about? Uh, and then they slightly changed it to say, well, no, 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 obviously not everyone, but all the racists were the ones, you know, if you were racist, you would have done it. So they turned it around in this sort of strange, um, uh, loopy logic came into play. Well, no, but all the racists would have been the ones who voted for Brexit. And you just thought you are so detached from the complexity and the nuance of individuals who think about these things in their own way and everyone thinks about it individually and has a slightly different view. I've never found anyone with exactly the same view as me on on Brexit, Ben. Never. No. No. You know, and how we how we became one side of the debate or the other side of the debate, that journey is individual. And to box us up and the elites do this all the time and say, well that's that box and that's this box makes no sense. And the other thing I thought when you sent that quote that uh Rolf, is, is it Rolf? Uh, yeah, Dagen? Rolf. Yeah, Rolf yeah. Dagen on Twitter. Uh, immediately that he he said that, I thought, yeah, the elites do this. It's it reminded me of that that, that phrase. Uh, <laughs> the whole world is a bit strange, except thee and me, and I'm not so sure about thee. Yes, that, yes, that, that, sense, that sense of um, <clears throat> oh yes, well, if only the whole world thought like I did, we would all be fine. Uh, and it's a very powerful statement. I, I did a bit of a research into it. It goes back to the social reformer. Robert Owen is supposed to have said it, and he didn't use those exact words. He said, all the world is queer, save thee and me, and even thou art a little queer, uh, which, of course, would mean something completely different nowadays. <laughs> However, I think there is that. It's instinctive. We believe that our analysis of the world, we believe that our analysis of uh, uh, of um of, of groups is is better than that of others and yet look at the divorce rate i mean can we even manage our own families <laughs> well they they call this the false consensus effect which i think is a real marker i think that's something we should uh, i think something we will return to time and time again in future episodes the false consensus effect um <clears throat> and i i have to say i mean on, on a personal level my probably my strongest experience of this was uh, pretty much, <clears throat> excuse me, pretty much immediately after the referendum. Um, I was working at Oxford University, one of the colleges, and I had some of the longest hours of my life sat at high table 
in the months and years after Brexit because it was interminable, the conversation about the subject. And this false consensus effect perme permeated every aspect of every conversation held about it. Uh, it. It was, well, there's two things. There's the false consensus effect of um, decent people like me must think this. Um, and then there's the uh, the classist, well, you know, obviously we've you know, the referendum's gone the wrong way and that's because the people can't be trusted and they're you know they're, they're one one outburst on social media away from from revealing their true racism within um and this this fear i think of the of the public and ordinary people uh you see this i think in in the actions of the premier league as well uh it it's the idea that we we're, we're all basically just itching to um reveal the the, the inner bigots um, and I think it's it's completely unfounded and unfair. Completely unfair. I, I think that's right. And and your your example of high table, Ben, yeah. would be my example of meeting a new group. I mean, I went on. I, I joined a walking group re relatively recently, chatting away on the walking group. It happened to be mainly a bunch of gay men. And I can't remember whether it was Trump that came up or whether it was Brexit that came up. But it was quite evident that. You know, I, they'd talked to me for a few hours, so they knew that I wasn't, um, you know, I was relatively well educated. I never got to high table like you did, Ben, but relatively well educated. <laughs> and the assumption was, oh, you must think this about Brexit. You must think yeah. this about Trump. You must think this about whatever other sort of touch point issues were. Uh, because obviously you're in our group, you've come to our group, and you have these characteristics. So you must think this. And it's, blows my mind that that is it is where we it seems it seems though on thinking positively it seems like th this article about the false consensus effect as which as you say we will come back to combined yeah. with ideas that people like matt goodwin are, are coming up with around the new elite there's some really good yes. thinking that's being made very relevant to what we're seeing at the free speech union every day and as we start to explore these concepts i think they're going to they already have created a life of their own and an interpretation of their own in the current cultural environment and that is important something that i've struggled with as a sort of more mathematical kind of person and more a more scientific kind of brain is I don't get why that's not a tangible thing it's just an idea but these ideas actually in a cultural environment, culture is so intangible, they have real power and they do start to push back. Uh, not the tide, I'd call it the mist of yes, council the culture, the fog of council culture. And so we do need to come back to it. We do need to work it through. And I love it as well, Ben, when we combine it with the thoughts that have already taken place as we always talk about you know whether it's john milton or whether it's a roman emperor again they have also had these thoughts they just never had to interpret them in our times and that's what these people like rolf dagan and, and like matt goodwin are doing for us so we will come back to it i am 100 percent sure one of the things about matt goodwin um is i think the the kind of vitriol i've seen him attract from sort of academics on twitter um, who are, if I can use the word toxic, a pretty toxic bunch sometimes, uh, mm. or some of them. Um, <clears throat> I think it's because he's a class traitor, um, as I am as well, um, where if you um, are sort of raised in and work in and live among a bourgeois 
Guardian reading educated set and you leave that particular faith, um, it, well, any kind of apostasy is the worst sort of, of betrayal and it inspires a hatred much greater than that group feels towards its, its enemies. Um, and so I think that that class treason is a large part of, of the vitriol he receives. And also, if you're from a kind of middle-class background, you know, academic background, whatever, and you, you vote or, or speak in favour of Brexit, uh, you know, again, it's it's you're a class traitor. That's why it, it provokes such hostility. You're no longer one of us. You're right. no longer one right. of us. You ought to think this if you're one of us. Yeah. Um, you've broken the rules. And then that, then the brain explodes. <laughs> what do we do? They broke <laughs> yes. the rules. What do we do? We can't invite them back for dinner. Uh, and, of course, that's what happens. One does end up slightly ostracized. And we get this reconfirmation, of course, because we haven't got the other. Your voice gets eliminated from the social group. That voice is no longer there. And therefore, the dinner table of the new elite is uh, is kept appropriately uh, where it ought to be in the views of those who think in these terms. I, I if may I just say one final word in my own defence that I I do not miss sitting at high table in Oxford College one bit. It it sounds decadent. It was excruciating. I can imagine. I didn't even know you had high tables in Oxford, um, but uh, that might be my Cantabian uh, biases coming out. We really are not. I mean, we've talked about football a lot today, Ben, but we, we should come clean at this point, shouldn't we? That we are yeah. not naturally uh, football supporters and that we've been desperately studying the offside rule over the weekend to try and sound authoritative today. <laughs> and Tom is now going to explain the offside rule to us. I am not going to do anything no, of the not. sort. <laughs> he's not. He's uh, he's just he's just turned quite red, actually. Turned quite red. Uh, <laughs> let's not go there. Let's not go there. <laughs> um, well, you know, there's going to be more on all of that. Um, I think all of those, uh, those stories and themes we'll, we'll be coming back to um, next week or in, in the coming weeks. We have one last item today we wanted to talk about, which, uh, again, has, has there's been such a busy news week in the free speech world. And it's, uh, it's quite a tragic story, really. It's uh, the MP, Mike Freer, who resigned last week. And the reason he resigned uh, was that uh, he had been receiving threats and had actually as well had uh, his offices, I think, were attacked just before Christmas. And there seems to have been a sustained attack on him. He he is the MP up in uh, Finchley, I think. And yeah. um, in his resignation letter, he said that he'd been receiving, and again, it was over a sustained period, multiple threats from Islamist groups. He also very narrowly missed potentially being attacked by the same person who stabbed and sadly killed Sir David Amos. So he had a real close brush there with a potential tragedy. And it's been uh, completely grinding him down over a period of time. He is human, which we have to remember our MPs are. They are human. And it was really sad news to hear that he's decided to stand down. Um, why is this a free speech issue? Because one of the most core issue, one of the most core freedoms, is the right to uh, to to um, to serve in office and to speak freely while you are serving in office and to to make your views clear. Because you've been elected to represent multiple voices, so it's 
it's the very essence of a free speech issue. You represent the voices of your constituents. And he had a lot of Jewish constituents whose voices need to be heard in all sorts of situations, including the House of Commons. And so this is going to um, make a lot of people sit up, I think, and think, well, what is now happening at the very heart of our democracy when an MP feels they no longer can represent the voices of their constituents because of Islamist threats. And I think, Ben, I don't know what you think, but I, one of the things that um, I saw in the debate afterwards in, in Parliament, I don't think it was a technically a debate on this issue, but it was a lot of discussion on this issue, was a focus on social media and the whipping up of, of heightened emotions on social media, which is a fair point. You know, emotions are very heightened on social media. You talk about Twitter a lot and X, and I, I don't particularly want to get involved in Twitter and X because I don't want to get involved in that kind of conversation. It doesn't seem to me a quality conversation. <clears throat> and I think it does rile people up and it gets them all fired up, and I think that's a problem. So that's a fair point. Absolutely it is. But in this instance, it's quite clear there was physical threat, Islamist threat coming towards Mike Freer. And that seemed not to get discussed as openly, barring our ex-Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, who did address that very specific issue. Uh, it seems like it was as much as possible avoided. And I don't know what you felt about that, Ben. Well, I, I think let's go back to the murder of Sir David Amos. Um, in the aftermath of that, there was this desperate need for politicians and elites to find something to talk about that was decent, that passed the Oxford high table test that wouldn't upset bourgeois middle-class academics uh, or people from that background. And the thing they settled on was the idea that the killing had somehow been caused or, or was somehow linked to uh, online anonymity. And weeks were spent discussing the question of online anonymity and people creating fake Twitter accounts to abuse MPs. That's you know an unpleasant thing to be on the receiving end of, of course. But it is completely unrelated from the fact of a Islamist nutcase turning up at an MP's office, having scouted the offices of other MPs to stab and kill him. So there was this talk of having a David's law against social media abuse. I mean, you may as well have a David's law against filling in, uh, against delaying filling in potholes. It's completely irrelevant to the issue at hand. Completely irrelevant. And we we see this constant obfuscation and misdirection uh this don't look back in anger mentality after schoolgirls are blown up this incessant need to do anything but talk about the issue and to answer your question what do i think about this i think that to be blunt this is a harbinger of things to come the number of members of parliament now that have been forced out uh, uh, of their constituencies, either by being murdered uh, or by threats and intimidation of this kind, is only going to increase. And in part, that's because there has been a complete failure in the last 35 years since Satanic Verses um, to look into the causes of this and to grapple with it. So, um, I, I, I can't summon any optimism on on that. I'm afraid it, it's going to keep happening. Um, the only thing I would say, though, is that, uh, well, the whole premise of the free speech union is that word union of uh, strength in numbers. And I think that probably is the 
only thing we can really rely on. And it, it's it's the ability of people to speak openly, confidently, with clarity about Islam, Islamism, jihadism, where these things come from, why they keep happening, who's perpetrate, who's um, perpetrating them, um, and to keep politicians well, not keep politicians honest, but make politicians be honest about this because none of these issues are going away. They're not going anywhere. There, there is, of course, a, an extreme far-right element. Of course uh, there is, yeah. On the fringes of, of British politics, but it's absolutely minute. Yeah. Um, it, it's minute in absolute terms and it's minute compared to the Islamist and within that, the jihadist threat. Um, it, it's complete... It, it, I mean, it's, it, it's not insignificant, Yeah. but compared to... Uh, in comparison with the size and scale of the is Islamist threat. Um, I, 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 one of those is an urgent generational problem. The other is something that um, weirdos in basements are always going to do at a very small scale. And, and the question it leaves us with is, what? how do we get good people into politics? Because good people are leaving politics. Good people, talented people, thoughtful people, people who are willing to have the conversations that need to happen are being removed out of um, well, politics, either by, as you say, either by themselves or forced out. I think my probably my final thought on this today is that um, we need politicians who are as brave as the ordinary members of the public that I and the Free Speech Union speak to every day um, who are willing to express their views about things uh, in reasonable, temperate terms, but they are willing to be perfectly clear about about what they think um and if you do that in the context of your uh <clears throat> well of being an employee of virtually any company or organization in britain you can face pretty serious consequences depending on what you've said um members of parliament though have a, a duty to be uh upfront candid clear um and i just hope that the political generation after Brexit is populated by people who have seen the censoriousness of the last five to ten years and who want to overthrow it and who will be candid about the immense problems that modern Britain faces, be they in free speech and with respect to freedom of expression or elsewhere. And I think this is where we also go back to the police, who I think do a, you know, I, I just watched them around Parliament. They are on the ball. They are looking after our elected representatives. They're there in numbers. They check us. They uh, search us. You know, there is, <laughs> there is a police force looking after our elected representatives. But too often, I think these threats have been out there and uh, it, it, they've slipped through the net. And, and I, evidently, in this instance, an MP feels that they are not ultimately going to uh, get the protection they need. And again, I think it's, it's about priority within our police force to ensure that protecting our elected representatives, people in the public eye, people who say things in public debate, instead of, investig instead of investigating our tweets, invest, you know, look after our streets, protect us and make us feel that we are living in a society where we can have the conversations we need to have and be protected from those who may get aggressive as a result and try to shut us down. And, you know, a, a great example, let's, let's be positive, when we were going on the march against anti-Semitism, 
that March, the police were absolutely fantastic. I was I was worried about about going on that, and I was worried about um, what might happen because of what we've seen, um, uh, you know, over the weeks, and and what we've seen on the streets with his butteria and things like that, and crying out jihad before before they were proscribed, but. Yeah the police did a fantastic job in looking after us and it was a very peaceful day. So there's a lot going on that the police are doing that's great, but I think it's about they have a big job to do to make us feel safe, yes, A, but also that they're on our side as citizens, as individual citizens, not as groups, not as not as our group identity, whatever that may be, but as individuals because we've got to find a way to get back to that. Um so yeah, that that would be my last thought on that. I think Ben. Well, we will return next week. Thank you very much for listening. I'm sure we'll have more on the case of Lindsay Smith, the Premier League, Newcastle, uh, the investigations unit, that whole morass. Next time, uh, and uh, God only knows what will happen in the meantime. Tom, I dare say, <laughs> do go to our website and have a read of that article. And if you are a supporter of the Premier League of a Premier League club, do do put in that subject access request. But yes, have a fantastic week and we will speak to you next time. Goodbye.